Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our weekly evening Q&A session. As we wait for everyone to arrive, people to slowly shuffle in, you're welcome to say hello in the chat. You can say anything as long as it's kind and thoughtful and relevant. I read something today, I think, about COVID. Buddhists talking about COVID. Someone was very angry. One Buddhist was asking for help. He said they're very angry. And they want to know what to do about that. Someone else saying COVID's not a big deal. This pandemic is just fear-mongering. And real Buddhists would downplay it and point out how sickness is inevitable. Trying to avoid sickness is bad and so on. So it's a good question. What, what is the Buddhist response to the global viral pandemic. I think there's two sides, and those are the two sides that, that those are two expressions of two sides. And they do point to certain ideas. The idea that something's going wrong. Not, not the virus being something wrong. The virus isn't really something wrong. Virus is a reality. It's a part of reality. That's it. Can't say much more than that. But we do start saying more than that. We start judging it. And we have opinions about it and reactions to it. Reactions to the, the results of the pandemic. One of those reactions is to try our best, as a, as a human race, really, to prevent, to eradicate, to free ourselves from it. And there's a lot of fear and a lot of anger and a lot of a lot of unwholesomeness that comes from that, for sure. And so when people point to that and say it's not very Buddhist sounds like they might be on to something but on the flip side not that it's the um, irrefutable argument in favor of uh, the global response but on the flip side, a lot of people have learned from the pandemic. You learn from scary things. You can learn from scary things. We learn from sickness. We can. We can learn from death. And quite often it requires such extreme 
events, experiences, unexpected, undesired experiences, radical changes in the way we live our lives requires them for us to understand the instability of life, the fragility of Fragility of peace and happiness. Fragility of our made-up lives and narratives. And I think, looking at the way the world is now, you could argue that Many, many people, a great majority, I would say, of the world has come together, not in perfect harmony, but has uh, come together in, in a desire to prevent suffering. And now, as a Buddhist, if you wanted to be pedantic and overly technical you could say i think it's overly technical you would say something like well virus and sickness and death that's not real that's not the real problem the real problem is our attachment to these things and being afraid of them and trying to get rid of them that's not the way out of suffering and so fair enough But neither is the ignoring and the ridiculing and the the denying of people's aversion towards suffering. You know, if you the the recklessness in endangering others through not taking precautions to avoid the virus is is quite harmful. It's harmful because of the mind states associated with the person who does that, the sort of arrogance and conceit and self-righteousness. But also the the total lack of consideration for other people's desires and fears how scary it must be to to be to be infected because someone else was irresponsible or to even just hear how others have been infected how much fear-mongering there is caused by those who proliferate the virus. I mean, really, I suppose one could say it's karma. If someone gets a virus, it's karma, which is totally not the sort of thing the Buddha would say. It's sort of fatalism, right? Oh, you got the coronavirus, you must have deserved it. You must have done something bad in your past life. It's totally not the truth. The truth is, bad things cause bad result, and sickness can be a result of, well, primarily karma, 
bad karma that you've done in the past, but it's still only primarily. There's lots and lots of other conditions, like people not people around you not wearing masks, people around you being arrogant, thinking that we have no right to force them. You can't make me. It's my I'm free to do what I want. Yes, we're all free to do what we want. We're even free to murder and steal and torture others. We're totally free to do it. It doesn't mean there's not going to be serious repercussions. Free to do anything you want, anything you can. Buddhism doesn't condemn actions. Buddhism simply points out the results of actions, the potential results, and the the relationship between causes and effects. That's all. No condemnation, no judge, no jury. Just reality. I think the biggest thing you can say about taking precautions and working with the rest of the world to try and uh, limit or end this scary event, scary reality, is that it's our duty as, as a part of society. It's what everyone's doing. It's what's been agreed on. It involves, I mean, more importantly than that, it involves the health and happiness of our fellow human beings. And so like any other catastrophe, working together is the right answer. Harmony. When there's a hurricane, everyone trying to help everyone else. Not because that's going to free them from suffering, of course. The only thing that truly frees us from suffering is our, our own cultivation of clarity of mind. But harmony is and, and kindness... Thoughtfulness, consideration, these are all supportive qualities of mind. And when you actively cultivate the opposite, disregard for others, arrogance, conceit, yeah, you're not going to be free from suffering, nor are those who you interact with going to be in a position to free themselves from suffering. Not to mention... Sickness is, yeah, you can learn from it, but it's a, an incredible debilitator for a, for a practitioner, even for a serious, committed practitioner. It's not a good thing. So learning experience can be a good thing, but it can be a good thing if you've done a lot of practice and are ready for it to, to understand it and to, to allow it to help you to understand reality. It's Without that, saying, it's okay if they get old, sick, and die, no problem. They'll just learn something from it is incredibly irresponsible. First of all, they're most likely, ordinary people are most likely not to learn very much. They're most likely to be uh, traumatized if they don't die. And if they do die, most likely to be reborn in the animal or the, the lower realms. It's a terrible thing. 
We all have this wonderful opportunity to be born as a human being who can practice and understand the truth of reality much, much better in, in ways that animals and so on never could hope to. And then to dis just disregard people's lives and be inconsiderate of that opportunity that they have and to not guard it preciously, guard it, no, guard it like a precious treasure both our lives and the lives of those around us. It's incredibly irresponsible. So it, I mean, it doesn't really matter what's um, what's the most effective there's a lot of argument over what's effective, what's going to stop this, what's going to help. A lot of misinformation, disinformation. Ultimately, ultimately most important is our frame of mind. Why are we doing it? Wear a mask. I always wear a mask now when I go out. Even when there's nobody around, I wear a mask, thinking that's just a kind thing to do. It's just it, it reaffirms for people that I'm I'm on board. I'm right there with you. We're in this together. I'm not going to I'm not going to abandon you. It shows responsibility I think a big reason for the controversies surrounding it are people don't like to have to change their change don't have to li like to have to change their lifestyles we have a hard time with change we feel um, attacked we feel threatened by when we're told we must change and we come up with all sorts of views and reasons as to why we shouldn't change. It's a very un-Buddhist thing, right? Flexibility, adaptability. Adapt. If this is the new norm, our question should be, how can we make this new norm peaceful, harmonious, and conducive to mental development for everyone? For the most people we can as best we can not how can we how can we go back to the way we're used to things being that's never right never right because life always changes the world is always changing so just some thoughts anyway i see lots and lots of questions so i won't take up any more time maybe we'll go a little longer if we have too many questions 54 people watching thank you for coming out I'm ready if you are, when you are, Chris. Chris is here to help, as usual. Okay, let's begin. Should lay meditators completely abstain from all sexual activity, or is this something that only applies to monastics? Yes. Now, you have to be a little careful of the word should in any context. Um, 
Buddhism doesn't deal so much in should. Now, colloquial, colloquially you use it, but a much more accurate um, statement would be sexual activity is detrimental to the meditative practice. And so you could say, therefore, a meditator should completely abstain from sexual activity. But it's based on, the important thing is cause and effect. And you're encouraged not to. Uh, on a more sort of practical level, or practical understanding of it, uh, the only the difference between monks and and serious meditators is mainly livelihood, and that's the difference. Everything else is is basically the same. Now monks have. Lots of other rules for harmony of the community, but those are not. Those are just. I mean, they're important for monks, but it's not something to concern yourself as a meditator, not so much. And they're not that important. They're not unethical things. They're just a lot of technical stuff that keeps the community in harmony. But livelihood is the difference. Monks can't use money, they can't uh, take food for themselves, that sort of thing. They're required to abandon any search for wealth or property uh, beyond that which is ownerless and by ownerless means things like f food that is given so you're not asking for the food you're not trying to take something from someone but it's food that is designated for being given often to you, but sometimes just to people in general. Uh, robes that are discarded or given, but ideally discarded. And trees. Trees are where we're supposed to live, just at the root of a tree. But the general idea is livelihood, and it is a distinction. But everything else, follow in the footsteps of a monk, basically. The eight precepts is what I'm thinking of. If you're If you're interested... The real question is whether the eight precepts are a good thing for anyone to take and when you should take them. You should take them whenever you're seriously undertaking meditation practice. That's what they're designed for. Without keeping the eight precepts, your meditation practice is going to go slowly. From people doing the at-home course, we require the five precepts, but I think I have at least one student right now who's keeping the eight precepts, maybe more. And it's certainly not detrimental if you can manage it, if you don't have to do strenuous work. It's a good exercise, a good practice. And that includes abstinence, celibacy. Is mental vedana a general sense of feeling good or feeling bad? Sometimes, maybe concerning pride, I feel and note suffering, like a wound of which I feel only the pain. Would it be a valid note? I'm not quite sure how that relates to pride. I guess when you have wounded pride and you feel... see. Painful mental feeling is 
only, only associated with anger. So if you dislike something, there's always there's also going to be a mental suffering. And so you can just note angry and be done with it. But you can also note the, the, the suffering involved with it. Like sadness, right? When you feel sad, often it's just a, a suffering. So that's fine. Saying suffering would be fine. But sad is easier. Um, pleasant mental feelings can be associated with wholesomeness or unwholesomeness. Uh, also, neither wholesome nor unwholesome. So they're they're it's ethically variable. So you might feel pleasure, happy in the mind. Uh, you might feel happy relating to something good that you're doing. You might feel happy based on something you crave or you want. And so you can just note happy, but you can also note the associated states. Does being drunk disrupt the usage of meditation? Yes. Yeah, let me just go back to the sexual. I didn't actually answer all of the... No, that's fine. Stay on that one. But I'll answer them sure. both here because it's sort of the same idea. So that's basically the reason for the precepts, is that they relate to things that disrupt our practice. Now, the five precepts are pretty egregious. Killing, stealing, uh, adultery, lying, taking drugs and alcohol. These are things that really have a strong impact on the mind in different ways. They're not all the same. So you could maybe, I mean, there's no reason to, but you could say that some of them are more serious than others, but it's mostly situational. And the point is that they they disrupt the mind. They they cult, They encourage unwholesomeness. So with things like sexual activity, and sexual activity isn't egregious, isn't a, a, a serious, terrible, evil thing, but it's, an, it's a very strong distraction, as anyone who's engaged in it knows, and, and engages in it uh, knows. It's a way of um, avoiding the, um, the dissatisfaction of life, because it's a way of finding satisfaction, but it's incredibly dis addictive, and it leads to increased dissatisfaction. As a result, people who are uh, sexual, who are are highly sexually active, become aggressive, even become prone to anger. prone to extreme uh, reaction, just like any drug, really. You can look at how the brain works to understand it. There's a lot of brain chemicals work at, at, at play, and they, they create a loop where you need more and more and more and newer and new and more exciting experiences in order to be satisfied. And of course, that can that's unsustainable, and so it crashes. Right, so that was that one. Um, regarding to alcohol, in regards to alcohol, 
it's a little bit different because it doesn't really have to do with the mind per se. The desire to drink alcohol perhaps is the bigger problem because of course you can unwittingly drink alcohol. It can be in certain foods. I remember taking a drink of what I thought was water once and it turned out it was straight hard liquor, hard alcohol, vodka or something. But what does it do? Um, it it dulls the mind. It, it's basically antithetical. It's the opposite of what we're trying to cultivate. Alcohol prevents you from making connections. It prevents you from understanding the consequences, the ramifications. It prevents you from being able to appreciate a situation and to comprehend it to any degree and that's why we take it and so the reasons for taking it being why they are the most problematic is because they're intentional the intention is to avoid consequences to avoid having to deal with situations social lubricant we take it so that we don't have to feel awkward it's a good question why do you feel awkward self-conscious not have to deal with your issues and it certainly doesn't make those issues go away. If anything, it heightens them because you're avoiding them. It prevents you from having to face the reality of your mental makeup. It prevents you from having to deal with the consequences of your actions, with your fears, your worries. Prevents you from feeling responsible for from getting angry or craving. So we make a lot of mistakes when we're drunk, and we laugh them off as being drunken mistakes. But it's the whole point, right? So you can do things you'd otherwise feel self-conscious doing, like get very angry or passionate. So yeah, being drunk is a bit big problem. From rising falling, one can notice the heartbeat. What to do since the heartbeat will hopefully not disappear? I note it until the mind says, okay, that's enough. Same issue with continuous sounds. Yeah, that's fine. Once you've had enough, just ignore it and go back to rising and falling. If your mind is carried away to it again, to any meaningful degree, go ahead and note it again. Don't get too stuck up on, it must be this way, it must be that way, what to do, right? You're doing great, but don't be too rigid about it. Sometimes you might find, you know, let yourself adjust as you as you progress. You might find that you're doing it a little bit, you could do it a little bit more efficiently, and that's usually what it is. Efficiency, because it's not conscious, it's not intellectual, like, okay, now I'm going to do it this way. It's because your mind sees that you're inefficient and it starts to tweak. That's how a clear mind works. That's the, the, the greatness of a clear mind. You see so clearly that you're able to see the inefficiencies, the, the grinding of the gears, basically the suffering that comes from the imperfections uh, involved in your habits, your patterns of behavior.
Are the points of touching at the surface of the body or inside? What size and form are they? At the surface, about the size of a coin. How to make your mind stay in the present moment? You don't make your mind stay in the present moment. You can't. It's a good question. Um, I mean, it's a good point because you can't force your mind in all sorts of ways and yet the whole practice is being in the present moment. But let's put it this way. The mind is always in the present moment. The mind is never in the past or in the future, right? The mind is a moment. It is the present moment. The present moment is a moment of consciousness. So it's not exactly what we're trying to do. But the point of your question is how do we stay with that? How do we be conscious of it? And so it kind of answers itself. It's the, the practice that we're undertaking to simplify our interaction with the present moment. And that's a long process. So basically the answer to your question is become enlightened. Because through the practice you're going to start to see how um, the practical, the, what, we, what we call not being in the present moment, where we react and we theorize and we analyze and we interpret, we identify with our experiences, how that all causes stress and suffering. And so eventually, we call it being with the present moment, but actually it's just not reacting to the present moment, not making more of the present moment than it really is. And you don't make that happen. It happens as a result of seeing that all the other stuff that we do is just not useful, not beneficial, and basically harmful. Is playing music an unmindful activity since you have to constantly be thinking of the beats and notes before and after the one you're playing? What would one note to be mindful while playing music? Yeah, you got a good point there. That's why rhythm is problematic. But as with any activity, intentional activity that Intentional activity, well, there's two parts to it. There's the mental part and there's the physical part. Music can be very physical once you get good at it. Once you become familiar with a song, the mind does very little work. And so you could be very mindful while playing music. What would you note? You, it depends what sort of music you're playing. Suppose you're playing drums, then it would be hitting, hitting, hitting. But if that's probably too fast, you might just say playing, playing, or moving. Ideally, you'd play very slowly <laughs> so that you could note each hit. And with a guitar, you would note when you press down, so you'd have to play very slowly to really be very mindful, to really, to really cultivate, to really engage in it as a meditation practice because the noting has to be intentional. It can't be too, um, too rapid. The rate has to be reasonable, like once a second or something like that. 
And so most likely you couldn't do that while playing most music. But what you're not saying, and what I hope you understand, is that music is a cause for attachment. We like music, right? You wouldn't play music if you didn't like it. The people you're playing for wouldn't listen to it if they didn't like it. We don't do it to learn some scientific theory. We don't learn, do it to learn more about ourselves, though we might say that sometimes. The music can have a message, especially if there's words put to it. But there's the question, why not just say the message? And the, the, the answer is, is quite telling. The answer is because it's much more pleasant to hear the much more enjoyable to hear the message that way it feels very meaningful but actually we just feel really good about it and that's addictive it's a cause for eventual suffering anyone who's listened to music uh, who's who's done a lot of interacting with music in the past and comes to meditate will find themselves having to hear their music over and over and over again while they meditate it's like going through a withdrawal so that's the bigger problem with music, particularly. I find that the longer I practice noting, the more subtle the words I note with become. Can you explain how noting should be properly developed? Not really. Anything I could explain wouldn't really capture it. If you notice something out of the ordinary, note that as well. If you note that the words are the the words are becoming more subtle, say that knowing, knowing. And you can't go wrong with that, because ultimately you shouldn't notice anything about it. Or I mean if you do, you should note that. Ultimately it will become something that you just do. How do I note music stuck in my head? I've been using visualizing for daydreams, but I don't know what to note for audio. Hearing. It is actually hearing, even though you're not hearing with the ears. It's an experience of hearing. And you're seeing for daydreams. You don't have to say visualizing. You could, but seeing is simpler. Because it's an experience of seeing. In the lifting-placing walking exercise, how should we approach weight shift? When we place the right foot, we place shifting half of the weight, and then at the beginning of lifting, the other half? Just don't pay attention to it. Even if you notice it, just focus on the foot. There's too much going on, and it's good that you notice all that. That's going to happen naturally. But limit your noting to the actual movement of the foot. Just simply lifting and placing. Let the shifting happen naturally. Like, like it should be two distinct movements, lifting and then stop, and lifting is straight up. So there's not, well, lifting is straight up anyway, and then placing is down and out. Two separate movements.
While meditating, thoughts arise in my mind, but I say to myself, thinking, thinking, but later somehow I start dreaming. Is my concentration weak? Potentially, I wouldn't, don't, don't, don't um, stress about that too much. Not, not really into judging like that. Just try and note whatever happens, and you'll work it all out. Don't, don't have to, like, you might notice if something is weak, like if you're distracted a lot, or if you're daydreaming a lot, yeah, it's kind of a distraction. But all you do there is just say distracted or dreaming. If you see something, say seeing. Saying things like my concentration is weak is just something that you can note to yourself, like, oh yeah, I'm distracted, I, I should focus on that, I should remember to note those things, because they're a sign of low concentration, or if you're, um, if you're drowsy a lot, you might say, oh, I have to note that because it's a sign I, I'm imbalanced. You note the imbalances if you're you have a lot of doubt or if you have a lot of greed or a lot of anger try and note all that how does one meditate on death we had this one recently huh it so there's up. two ways yeah it's two ways. Uh, conceptually, there's two kinds of death. Conceptual death, this person died, that person died, I'm going to die. And then there's uh, real death, which is every moment. I'd mourn and die every moment. So mindfulness is a way of being mindful of death because it helps you see the nature of reality, the nature of birth and death as being every moment. But specifically talking about people dying, that's useful. Useful, It helps you cultivate a um, sense of urgency. Like I was talking about this pandemic, the, the suffering has brought people to a greater level, of, many people to a greater level of consciousness as they learn about the uncertainty of life. So in that case, there's just chants, other kinds of mantras. Instead of saying seeing or rising, falling, you would say, I'm going to die. <laughs> My life is uncertain. Death is certain. Everybody is going to, everyone dies. Uh, life, life has death as its end. And there's Pali chants like that. Duwang maranang, aduwang jivitang, duwang maranang. All beings will die. Just good things to remember. Helps you not become negligent or uh, complacent. I have heard you speak of how we have limited control over our actions, thoughts, etc. Where does our control come from, and does mindfulness enable more control? It's not really a good question. I mean, it's a reasonable thing to ask, but 
it's not really the right, right way of looking at things. So I'm going to kind of sidestep it, and it may seem a little bit uh, deceptive of me or, or slippery of me to not answer it. But don't look at it like that in terms of control. Mindfulness is about seeing clearly. So what appears to be control that you gain from meditation is merely the simplification of the mind. When you're more mindful, as you become more mindful, you see more clearly. As a result of seeing clearly, there's less complexity in the mind, less of the chaos or out-of-control states that make us feel like we have no control. But there's also less of a sense of control or a need to control or an idea that somehow uh, control is the proper response for things. So the the impetus to control, the drive to control is reduced as a result of seeing how things just don't go according to plan and how trying to control leads to suffering. Is this the process of meditation? We note the phenomena in order to see they are not me in the sense because I can see it, it can't be me. By doing that, we stop identifying with the sankharas? No. No, that's very intellectual. It's not like that at all. I mean, ultimately, non-self just means the thing itself doesn't have a self, doesn't have anything to do with self, isn't controllable, isn't me, isn't mine, and in all the many ways you might think of a self, and there's different ways. It's just non-self. It doesn't have any substance, it's ephemeral, it's momentary. And how the things that we think are self are actually made up of these momentary things, so they aren't self either, they aren't real either. And so the, the, the way it, it works is you see more clearly, again I'm repeating myself, but you just start to see more clearly. And as you see clearly any sense of self, any of the many different ways, this is me, this is mine, this I am, this is myself, etc., etc. They just sort of fade away because they have no, play, no basis in reality. So we note phenomena in order to see them clearly. That's really it. That's all. How may I cultivate loving-kindness in meditation for family who have been identified as abusive toward myself and others? How do I move past guilt from abuse and into self-compassion? So self-compassion, I'm always wary of these self-love, self-compassion things. They're not really um, encouraged. It's not something you would focus on. Compassion is for other beings, and kindness, metta, friendliness, is for other beings. Now, you do it on yourself as an example, but the texts make it clear that that's just as an example. It's pretty easy, simple anyway, to wish for yourself to be happy, free from suffering. But it's not the same as when you wish it for someone else. Um, so 
there's nothing wrong with doing it. I just, I'm not convinced that it's a good thing to focus your attention on, especially because it can lead to um, sort of a, a, a craving or a desire, right? May I be happy is kind of like that I can get everything I want. And instead of trying to avoid suffering, we're trying to face suffering. So when you wish it for others, it's quite different. It's a positive state of mind that helps you be stronger in mind because it, it, it increases mental stability. So how you do it for abusive family members, as an example, you place them in the category of people who it's hard to be friendly towards. And by friendly, it doesn't mean you have to go out and be their friend. It means have a mind state that wishes them to be free from suffering. It doesn't mean you have to have any interaction with them. It doesn't even really mean that you th you um, think it's possible that they might somehow magically become good people. It's more of your inclination towards them. Your freedom from the anger and the, the negativity. It's all for your benefit, really. To make you a stronger, more peaceful, happier, kind person. But you put them in the hard category, and there are th so there are three categories. There's people who it's easy to be kind towards, friendly towards. There's people who it's neither easy nor difficult, and then there's people who it's hard. And then there's yourself as a fourth. So you start with yourself. May I be happy? You can repeat that to yourself, thinking of how how you can I may I be happy, and once you sort of get that idea, then you think about people who it's easy to be friendly towards. These are people who you love. Shouldn't be someone you're sexually attracted to because of the obvious conflict that might arise. Family members are good, you know, kind family members, good friends, that sort of thing. And when you get good at that, move on to someone who it's a little more difficult. It's not e not so easy to be friendly towards. Generally, someone you don't know, someone you don't have an opinion of, someone you maybe met and really don't think one way or another about them. You're indifferent to them. Wish them to be happy, and when you can do that, then move on to someone who it's hard and. You can go back and forth between these categories. So when you try with someone who it's hard and it's just anger arises, quickly move back to someone who it's easier, the neutral person. And if that creates negative states, move back to the easy person. And, and you cultivate it that way. You can really, really cultivate it as a practice. It can be quite powerful and lead to powerful states of mind. Another way and the way that we generally do it is to just practice mindfulness because that strengthens your mind and that really makes you it, it enables you to skip a lot of that artificial overriding of your your inclinations because you just deconstruct them so any anger you have towards those family members is reduced any inclination to be angry is reduced why? not because they're, you, you think they're good people but because you realize that anger isn't hurting them it's only hurting me Guilt is another example. Guilt isn't useful or positive. It's it's painful. And so rather than try to switch to the opposite, which would be f 
feeling good about things that you've done. What's the opposite of guilt for things you've done? Feeling good about them. Rather than moving to that, or as you say, compassion, move to, to see that the, the guilt is painful, is harmful, is useless, doesn't help anybody. And as you see more clearly, the cultivation of loving-kindness becomes easier. And so then when you feel angry towards the person, you can apply kindness, friendliness quite easily with the support of mindfulness because you have a strong mind, you have a clear mind, and the anger is weakened. So that's what we would do. If you're sitting in meditation and these thoughts come up towards someone, just send them, immediately stop and send them loving-kindness and try for a bit, and then when you've had enough, go back to your practice. And try as well, try eventually to just note angry, angry, and let it go. And guilt as well. Guilt is kind of a disliking as well, so just note disliking, sad sometimes, worry sometimes. How does meditation affect sleep time? Probably you sleep less if you practice this type of meditation over time because you need less sleep, because your mind is less um, stressed, your body as well. There's less tension in the body. The brain is less overworked. Sometimes my attention is taken from the rising and falling of my stomach by complex feelings that I can't note with a single word. Should I simply note the feeling itself until it goes away? Yeah, I mean, sometimes, in some cases, you'll eventually be able to deconstruct it more, more finely and realize that there's emotions involved and that sort of thing. You say feelings and that's ambiguous. I don't quite know, and I don't know which sort of feeling you're talking about. But as far as feelings in the body, often f the word feeling is the best note. With things that involve mental states, again, you might start to be able to deconstruct them, but feeling is fine. Is it the other thing you can do, sorry, just, just one last thing. The other thing you can do is if there are multiple feelings... And you just, as you say, can't know with a single word. Well, pick one of them, whichever one you think is most, or, or one that feels prevalent, that feels clearest, and note that. So that it's not a complex feeling, it's a bunch of things, and just note one that you can see clearly. And just kind of ignore the rest for the time being. Is it okay to note a different object every second like this, rising, falling, feeling, distracted, etc.? Or is there a minimum amount of seconds for each object? So rising you note until it ends, and you wouldn't note it anymore because it's already ended. Falling is the same. Anything else, you should note it until it goes away. But you shouldn't go looking for something new to note. If there's nothing, just continue on with rising, falling.
It's when something distracts you, and that was probably a lot in the beginning that you note it. Try and stay with it until it goes away. If after a long time it doesn't go away, you can ignore it and go back to the rising and falling. When I note certain objects like thinking, it immediately disappears and I'm left with aware, aware. Does it mean it's impossible to note thinking? So noting isn't technically as something is occurring, though with, with things that last, it feels like that. But you're always going to be relating back to something that just happened. And if you keep repeating it, you're still relating to what you just experienced. That's how it works. With thinking, of course, once you've said thinking, you're already on to a different kind of mental activity, so the thought generally ceases. In that case, you've you've done the, the work, and yes, you've, you've noted it. Go back to watching the rising and falling, for example. I'm having difficulties coming to terms with the concept of rebirth. I can already see that the way I live my life will become completely different if I am fully convinced of rebirth. What do I do? Yeah, this is a common question. It's a good question. But let me, I'll give you my spiel. Let me give you an alternative proposal. An alternative way of looking at things. What is real? What is real? And to answer that question, stop, start by forgetting everything you know, everything you've been told. Do what Descartes did. I, mean, I always come back to this guy because he's a Westerner, but... Really, he started off from good principles, and that's why one of the reasons he's so famous, he did a good thing. He did that. He said, put aside everything I think I know, because I realize I can't know it. I can't say I know this. What can I possibly know? And he realized it was his experience. Experience is, is knowable. I can't know the content of the experience. I can't know all of the scientific Results of like uh, the brain, life, uh, death, all I can know is experience. That's the basis of everything. He realized there was something that could not be an illusion because illusion takes experience, requires experience. And so, if you take that as the basis of reality, and you start to learn about that reality based on experience. You see that what you know, putting everything else aside, is that experience continues on. And so you taking that taking that as a first principle, as first principles. I argue I would argue that you come to the conclusion. that death 
requires evidence. Death is not the foregone conclusion that we think it is. It's not the thing that we have to disprove. It's not the thing that we have to come to terms with in order to talk about rebirth. Death is the thing that requires evidence. We think a person died, but what does that mean? Death is conceptual. We conceive that this person died, that person died. What really happened? It requires an, a, a complete paradigm shift from thinking of experience as an addition to the physical reality to realizing that we don't actually know what this physical reality is or if it even exists outside of the mind. We don't know that. We can't know that. It's categorically impossible. These are things we cannot know ever in any way just by the very nature of them. They are conceptual. And if you make that paradigm shift, which is an important Buddhist paradigm shift, rebirth doesn't doesn't isn't a thing that you have to believe in. Rebirth is a thing you would have to disprove. You would have to say, because of this, mental experience stops. And okay, it, it's it, it's a re reasonable conclusion because that dead person looks like they're all the things that we think are caused by their mental activity have stopped. But we have no explanation as to why, no, no valid or, or convincing explanation as to why the experience should stop. And if we look at evidence, when we start to, to try and build a case for why death cuts off or or evidence or proof that death cuts off consciousness we come across some curious instances where the, the brain was dead and the mind continued working people who were able to account for near-death experiences there's decades of research by accredited PhDs in accredited universities come to the conclusion that it's highly unlikely that this is anything else than the mind being active while the body is dead. Out-of-body experiences where people leave their bodies and see things that they couldn't see if they were in their bodies. How does that work? If the brain is, you know, this sort of thing. So it starts from turning the tables and then you don't have to, you can just ignore all the noise. You don't have to believe in rebirth. You just have to change the way you look at things and then you'll stop doubting it. You'll, you'll stop thinking of it as something like rebirth and you'll start seeing reality as experiences that arise and cease. So this wasn't a meditation question, which means we're done with the meditation questions. More have arrived since. All right, so let's go through them. It's over. No more questions. going to go through the ones that we have. You're welcome to talk and chat as you like as you're like mindfully and thoughtfully and kind, friendly. I experience back and neck pain if I meditate for too long. What's the best way to meditate without these drawbacks? Well, they're not drawbacks, they're experiences. And so to some extent you have to face them and it's a part of the practice to face them especially neck pain, 
back pain can get overwhelming sometimes and can be problematic for certain people. So you can move, you can sit in a chair sometimes. You should find that your back and your neck get stronger and less tense and less susceptible to pain. But really, do try, no matter what you do, to alleviate it. Do try to face them. They're not drawbacks. They're experiences. They're a part of the meditation, not a distraction. Another thing you can do is not sit quite so long. Do some walking, some sitting. Maybe you're not doing enough walking. I'm a college freshman and my grades have been dropping. I'm finding it hard to return to doing my homework. Will noting help me to get rid of my procrastination? Yeah, absolutely. Because procrastination is a, is a word for a lot of mental states. You want to be doing something else. You don't want to be doing what you have to do. And all of that you come to let go of. So much, much more efficient at anything you put your mind to. Also, your mind is clear, so your grades are going to improve because you're much better able to remember things, much better able to put concepts together. It's just all around win-win-win. Of course, your ambition drops, and you might want to drop out of school when you realize how useless it is, but that's another issue. My practice is always going back and forth in terms of quality throughout the years. What can I do to make it more steady? Find a teacher and do practice with a teacher. Be more patient and more understanding with yourself, more flexible. It can take years, even lifetimes. Not, it's not to say you should be complacent, but you can't be too greedy either. You can't be too forceful or for, too judgmental. If you want good results, take the steps, find teachers, go to centers, do intensive courses, dedicate yourself to it. It's not magic. There's no pill you can take to make it all run smoothly. That's the end of meditation questions, Monte. All right, then we're done. Thank you all for coming. Good questions. One thing I note today, there were a lot of questions by people who were clearly engaged in the practice that we practice. More than I've seen. It's increased. Often we get people, we've often in the past, even the recent past, gotten a lot of people who are skeptical, uh, reticent, uh, maybe even critical of the practice of using a mantra to try and be mindful. And we don't see that. We didn't see that. We don't see that anymore. We didn't see that tonight. Instead, we see people practicing. So there's the that's evidence. People are doing it. They clearly see that it's at least um, provisionally beneficial. But I, all the time, constantly talking to people who tell me how beneficial it is. If I ever had any doubt, even if I hadn't practiced on my own, it would be gone from hearing all the people say how it's helped them. So this is good to see. Sadhu. Much appreciation, Sadhu. everyone. Thank you, Chris. 
Have a good night, everyone.